Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, um, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is part two of Living with Lung Cancer, and today's program is actually um, uh, titled For Caregivers, Practical Tips for Coping with yeah. Your Loved One's Lung Cancer. And um, I'm delighted that you're all on the call today. And we have um, many participants on the call today, um, and we are partnering today. Uh, we collaborate with many different cancer organizations on the program today, and I have to say that um, there are a number of uh, general cancer organizations, and then I do want to just call out to the lung cancer organizations that are specific to the program today, although we also have a caregiver program also, so I want to just mention the the organization. Um, there's um, the Caregiver Action Network, um, there's also lungcancer.org, Free to Breathe, Free Me from Lung Cancer, and also um, Longevity Foundation and Lung Cancer Alliance. So there are lots of specific resources for caregiving as well as about lung cancer on the program today um, that are supporting this program. And because of that and because of, um, you know, um, your interest in the program today, we have over 486 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, so from all different parts of the United States, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, China, India, Lebanon, the Philippines, Romania, Singapore, Spain, United, and United Kingdom. So really, really, it's a bit of a global call from all over the world, and you can see that this is a very important topic um, that affects many people's lives. And today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their corporate collaboration and making today's program possible and their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers today on the program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. And Dr. Lee is attending medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early drug development service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee is going to address the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, caring for the person with lung cancer, and helping to manage your loved one's treatment. Um, it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you, uh, Cancer Care, for providing this uh, great workshop uh, for patients and their caregivers. Um, I'd like to start off by touching upon the important role of the caregiver um, uh, in communicating with the uh, healthcare team and on behalf of the patient. Uh, now, as caregivers, you actually make a world of difference to, to patients. Uh, speaking from my own experience as a, an oncologist, those who have the misfortune of being diagnosed with lung cancer are at an incredibly uh, sad and lonely place. But your presence, your support, and your comfort and companionship really make have a huge impact on their lives. You listen, you facilitate, and you communicate, but you do not dictate. And to patients, you are their guardian angel. So this is, this is hugely important uh, to the journey of a patient uh, with lung cancers, and I do think this has an impact on, on the, um, the outcomes uh, of, of patients' care. Now, communication is the key. And that is um, the key role um, that you can play and that will have a really positive impact on the health outcomes of, of your loved one. Remember that cancer is our common enemy and we're all in this together as one team, whether it's the patient, him or herself, uh, the family member, the friend, the caregiver, and, your, and the, um, the treating a physician or surgeon or a nurse, uh, a pharmacist, uh, or any member of the multidisciplinary treating team. We're on, we're on one team, and it's important to have this perspective 
and that your role as a caregiver is to facilitate the communication in that one team. Um, so this team often is big and patients with lung cancers in this modern day and age will have to see a variety of different specialists who specialize in different types of skills which are all important for the, for the best treatment of lung cancers. So this includes a medical oncologist uh, like myself who treat um, cancers with medicines, whether it be chemotherapy, immunotherapy, precision targeted therapy, and as such. And an oncologist is, is, uh, should be partnered with a practice, clinical practice nurse uh, who is integral to the care of patient. Sometimes we have the luxury of having a clinical pharmacist involved in the care, and this is, this is also uh, an important aspect of patient care. Aside from a medical oncologist, there's the radiation oncologist who actually uses high-dose high um, X-ray beams to treat uh, patients' tumors. So the radiation oncologist um, uh, would often play a huge critical role in the care of patients. You, the, the, lung cancer, the patient with lung cancer may have to see a surgeon, a, often a thoracic surgeon, um, for, for management of the lung cancer through surgical techniques, such as in surgical resection. There may be interventional pulmonologists, radiologists, palliative care physicians, who may all be involved in that patient's care. So you can understand that a patient with lung cancer can easily get lost in this this uh, seeming maze of healthcare clinics and professionals, going from one appointment to the next, already faced with the anxiety and uncertainty of, of this life-threatening uh, diagnosis and be lost in the system. And you as the caregiver uh, plays that key role, play that key role in, in navigating that process for your loved one. So um, that facilitation and communication as it is important. In a particular consultation, even though if it could be an extensive consultation where a lot of things are discussed, it's easy to walk out the door and completely forget everything that was talked about. It, it could just go uh, 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 like uh, uh, without clarity. When you walk out that room, uh, you, your mind will be boggled and, and you could just not remember a thing that was talked about, or even only in bits and pieces. But if you have the caregiver next to you who may be taking notes or, or understanding, listening to, to um, discussions from a different point of view, that may be very, very helpful uh, for the patient. And there are some key questions that need to be asked in a oncology or cancer clinic consultation. First of all, um, the first question is what is the goal of care? And, and this may be curative, meaning that we can use a particular type or types of treatment uh, to render this cancer free and we can definitively treat this cancer so that it goes away and never comes back. This is curative. This is a real cure. And the patient would then go on to uh, live their normal life expectancy. Um, and that is a cure. But sadly, this is not always possible. And that's, often be that's because lung cancers are often diagnosed at a late stage with uh, advanced metastatic disease. And with today's science, this is still not yet curable. And a palliative goal of care may be the best way to treat such cancers. And palliative here means prolong life significantly and maximize quality of life. So it's both quantity and quality, even though the patient may not be cured and the treatment may need to be lifelong but with those twin goals in mind. That is good palliative treatment. So such goals need to be clarified at the outset so that everyone is on the same page. 
Um, other, other questions include what are the standard treatments available today and what are the clinical trial options there are for this, for this particular condition in this particular context. That's a lot of, that could be a lot of information and sometimes bringing a pad and jotting down some notes might be very helpful. And of course, there might be opportunity to revisit that at subsequent consultations. In terms of managing um, the ongoing treatment and care of the patient, patient may experience some symptoms and, and complications from cancer as well as the side effects from treatment. And it's important to um, take notice of those and, and, and to communicate that to the healthcare team. Even though the, uh, the treating uh, surgeon or oncologist may not be there at all times, but communicating um, symptoms to a practice member, such as a nurse, a clinical pharmacist, or even the uh, or the uh, office assistant, uh, would be important. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have a patient portal where patients are able, or their caregivers are able to send information proactively to um, uh, to my practice, so that I, along with my nurse and my uh, office assistant, will be notified immediately. Um, of of the updates from the patient in terms of symptoms because some of those symptoms or side effects need to be addressed, some more urgent than others. So it's important to keep that dialogue and that communication active. Um, my patients often call my office and report particular symptoms and my practice nurse may be the first point of call along with my office assistant, but I will be notified at all times and, and take proactive action together. Even though when I'm treating another patient, uh, such things can be done at once through a team approach. So this communication uh, is quite important. It's also important to keep an eye on the adherence of treatment, in particular swallowing specific cancer medicine in the form of pills. They may seem trivial, but often challenging for some patients. Some pills are too big to swallow, and some patients have a, a variety of reasons that they cannot adhere to treatment. So those things also need to be reported and communicated to the, uh, to the treating team. Such communication, fluid, the more the communication, the better the outcome will be. And, and, and th through this process, one can build trust. And that is really the cornerstone of this um, patient-physician relationship for the best, very best outcomes. So I will just pause here um, and, and turn over to um, our other speakers. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was really outstanding. And, and really the whole issue of the role of the caregiver, stressing how important that is, and, and the point you made really in how people often will forget everything that was said in the visit. It's awfully nice to take notes and to have another set of ears with you. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you very much. And our next speaker is um, Sharon Flynn. And Ms. Flynn is an oncology nurse. And she's a nurse educator, research and practice development, National Institutes of Health Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is going to address the role of caregivers in adherence, or mean taking or staying on schedule, and I'll let her define that for you, uh, coping with holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions, and managing family, friends, partners, and traditions. It's my pleasure now to turn this pro program over to Ms. Flynn. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and for the opportunity to be on this call today. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome all of our participants who are on the call, whether you're a healthcare provider, a person with lung cancer, or a caregiver of someone with lung cancer, you recognized the importance of the caregiver and made time to call in today. The caregiver is a family member or friend who has stepped up to respond with commitment to support their loved one, 
By reaching out today to learn more about the caregiver role, you are taking a significant step in coping successfully with this disease and its impact on your life and the lives of others. As you heard from Dr. Lee, communication with the healthcare team is important. You as the caregiver are the voice of the patient. So if you have a question, then the person with lung cancer probably has a question too, or they might be overwhelmed, as Dr. Lee said, and have forgotten everything that happened in that conversation. I encourage you, don't be afraid to speak up. Please get your questions answered during that medical appointment, and remember that we're all on one team and here to help you. Next, I'm going to talk about uh, the role of caregivers in adherence with your treatment schedule, um, especially coping with holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. So special occasions like holidays and birthdays are important family traditions that can become even more precious when someone is facing a serious illness. But even in the best of times, these events can be stressful, let alone when you might be juggling a new cancer diagnosis, chemotherapy, and multiple medical appointments. So I have a couple tips for you. First, there's no right way to celebrate. Be creative and think of a way to modify the celebration or holiday to incorporate everyone. Maybe going ice skating or playing football has always been a part of your family tradition. It might be hard to think of celebrating that holiday without performing a certain tradition, but now is the time to start a new tradition. Think about substituting that ice skating um, rink for maybe a board game, or maybe I was at a, a family um, reunion where there was a rock, paper, scissors competition, um, or decorating a gingerbread house. Focus on what is most important to your loved one and how to, how to incorporate the love and support of family and friends into that holiday or celebration. Ask yourself when planning for a holiday or celebration, what can realistically be done? In the past, were you the person that hosted the family event and cooked all the meals? Is this something you can realistically tackle now? Ask your loved one what their feelings are. Holidays and celebrations can be challenging. Remember that their experience is unique to them, and without their input, too many activities might be overwhelming. By talking through your feelings with your loved one, you can create lasting memories filled with love and compassion. A theme from Dr. Lee's pre part of the presentation is communication, not only with your medical team, but with your family and friends. If you as the caregiver um, won't explain to them or describe what you're dealing with and what you need, they can't help you. It can be hard to ask and receive help. But remember, it's important that others are grateful for the opportunity to be able to do something for you and it'll make it easier for them when you are clear about what you need. Sometimes using technology to communicate this through email or social media sites can be helpful. If you feel guilty about receiving help, remember that you can always pay back others later when things are a bit more stable and secure. Ask your healthcare team about specific medical concerns that might impact your ability to celebrate or travel to a celebration. Your medical team can suggest ways to make your loved one fully participate in that celebration. It might mean an adjustment of medications, it might mean limiting travel or shortening travel. They're there to help um, with scheduling of these events um, and providing advice. If your special occasion is close to your house, here are some strategies. Ask a family member to host or to cook an, a portion of the meal or a potluck for your event. Um, we usually don't ask new mothers to host large family events after just having a baby, and so now would be a perfect time to say, we're dealing with a serious illness here, perhaps another family member could host this event. Maybe the special occasion can take place at a restaurant or an outdoor venue like a park or a zoo. Many times it's not the location that people remember. It's the act of getting together that means the most to everyone. 
If you are thinking about hosting the celebration, ask for assistance for cleaning your house or apartment, not only before but after the event. Sometimes family members aren't available before the event, and neighbors um, and friends are willing to donate an hour or two of their time to help out. Again, people are waiting for you to ask them to help. Please tap into them and ask, um, ask for help. During this special event, don't be shy about asking members to assist. They want to help you and your loved one, but again, may not know how to help. They might need a gentle suggestion to go um, play a game or to um, uh, start a conversation. Consider scaling down the event. Instead of hosting a maybe 10-hour Thanksgiving Day celebration, maybe um, consider shortening that to a two-hour commitment. Maybe you could host coffee and breakfast. Um, it's a lot more manageable, a two-hour commitment, than an all-day event. And consider scaling down the number of people attending the event. If you're a family that invites lots of extended family, neighbors, and friends, maybe um, instead of 40 people, consider um, 10 people or splitting it up into two short events. I also recommend gently reminding anyone that's coming to the house for this special celebration that if they have a cough, cold, or flu, to please stay away until they have fully recovered. Acknowledge their willingness to come to the event and ease their guilt if they aren't able to attend due to illness. You can suggest an alternative time to celebrate with you and your loved one. As the people are coming to your house for the event, have them wash their hands upon arrival. I often keep a large bottle of hand sanitizer by my door. So I check people, um, I take their coat, and then I give them a squirt of hand sanitizer, um, including the children, too, who are notorious germ carriers, um, especially during cold and flu season. If you're, not, if you're traveling far from home, here are some strategies to help. Um, whether you're going away for a day or a week, being organized will help make for a better trip. To ensure that you have packed everything you need, start with a checklist. Some items on that checklist could include comfortable clothing. Consider items that you can layer, sweaters and jackets that you can take off or put on depending on the room temperature. Um, pack extra warm socks, a hat, scarf, or turban to keep your head warm. Remember to pack your documents, such as your insurance card, medication list, contact list with not only your medical team, but with your next-door neighbor, neighbor's phone number on it, your pharmacy phone number. Remember to pack plenty of snacks and fluids, such as water and juice. I also like to um, suggest to my patients that they carry hard candy, such as ginger or lemon drops, to combat nausea or a dry mouth, side effects of certain medications. And talking about medications, remember to pack enough medication you will need for the trip plus an extra day or two. Um, given the unpredictable weather in the winter, it's not uncommon, especially for our folks in Chicago um, that have received a lot of snow, that they've been snowed in for an extra day or two. So remember not only to pack for your loved one, but also medications that you need as the caregiver. Your medications are just as important as your loved ones. Write down your medication schedule. It's easy to forget medication when you're traveling. Um, it's even easy to forget medication when you aren't traveling. I recommend a reminder to help keep you on schedule. You can use your phone or set an alarm watch or a watch alarm each time you need to take that medication. For example, if I had to take an antibiotic every six hours, I would set my phone alarm to ring every six hours. That way I can just set it um, at the beginning of the week and every six hours it will ring and alert me that I need to take that medication on time. And don't forget inhaler medications, insulin, and anti-nausea treatments can also be easily missed. Set alarms and keep um, a schedule of those medications. If you're traveling outside of your time zone, for example, if you live on the East Coast and you're traveling to California, 
remember to try and stay on the time zone where you normally live um, and not to deviate too far off of your schedule. Make sure that you have your pharmacy phone numbers in case you are unexpectedly snowed in somewhere or can't um, or need to stay in that area so that you can get your prescriptions refilled. And during the winter, I also recommend carrying chapstick. Um, having an extra tube of chapstick or lip balm is not only um, soothing on the lips, um, it doesn't take up a lot of space. And then um, I tend to pick flavors like peppermint that um, when I'm feeling carsick, I can um, sniff the peppermint on my lips um, to help with nausea. Again, remember to have your hand sanitizer um, available and to wash your hands frequently. And caregivers, once you get to your destination, your celebration destination place, um, please re remember to either you, do, you or a designee screen the people coming in and out of the area. Again, if someone has a cold or a cough or the flu, um, we really want them to, to stay at their house and fully recover before coming around you and your loved one with cancer. And whether you're traveling um, or you're staying at home, remember caregivers to take care of yourself. Dr. Palos is going to discuss this further. But it's easy when we're on vacation somewhere or our regular routine is interrupted to not get our regular exercise and sleep. Um, remember to do those things, whether it's um, you know, eating sensibly and trying to stick to a regular routine will help you. Um, and with the stress of the holiday or celebration becomes too much, consider taking a deep, slow breath, one or two Sometimes I need to take 20 to help me refocus and reduce my anxiety. And lastly, um, remember to pack inspiration um, for the cancer fighter, survivor, and caregivers. These are all really tough jobs, and staying positive can make a big difference in your quality of life. I've had my patients write little motivational sayings on cards or bring pictures that remind them of special moments in their life. Um, encourage them to look at these quotes and pictures when they're feeling tired or overwhelmed. Remember, um, you can do this. And sometimes we just need a little reminder out of our backpack to remind us that we can do this. So caregivers and patients, you are not alone. There are many networks like Cancer Care to support the caregiver and the patient through this very difficult journey. Today's phone conference is just one of many resources available to you. And we encourage you to call in um, if you have any of your own tips for travel or for local celebrations to share with everyone on the call. And so I thank you and really appreciate your time today and for tuning into this podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. That was really wonderful and a lot of excellent tips and suggestions for people. And um, I know there are questions for you during the Q&A. And please do keep in mind, all of you, all, all who are listening, about tips that you'd like to share as well, because we realize that our speakers are giving you some suggestions, but we know that you're all living with these issues and indeed um, and whatever role you're playing um, in this, um, in the, in this uh, dealing with lung cancer, we'd like you to offer any kind of tip or suggestion that you find useful and could be helpful to others. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is, a, is both a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. She's clinical research manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to address long-distance caregivers, coping with the stress of caregiving, and self-care tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palos. Good afternoon or good day to all of our listeners uh, on this call. Thank you, Carolyn, for the opportunity to be involved in the discussion of such an important and timely topic, caregiving. Caregiving is such a simple word, but it has such a significant influence on so many individuals and can have equally important impact on the patient and on the caregiver's health outcomes. Dr. Lee gave us an excellent overview of the critical need for open communication with all members of the healthcare team and an understanding of some of the responsibility that come with those different roles. 
Ms. Flynn followed by educating us on the importance of following the treatment regimens and equally important on how to cope with the holidays and manage the challenges associated with being a caregiver during those times. As we have heard, caregivers may often feel that they have to keep up with the wonderful traditions that they've always associated with celebrating during those special events. And as they struggle to keep up with the traditions, they also then find themselves struggling to keep up with caregiving activities when the loved one is diagnosed with cancer. Trying to maintain so many roles can be challenging for a caregiver who may live with a patient or live close enough to care for their loved one on a regular or a daily basis. But what happens when there's a large geographic distance between the patient and the caregiver? What happens if the family finds that they are in a long-distance caregiving situation? Are the roles the same? How can a caregiver care for a person who lives in another city, another state, or even, at times, another country? Is long-distance caregiving even possible? As one caregiver once said to me, that cannot be done. How can you be a caregiver if you don't live with the person you're supposed to be caring for? I am positive that many of you listening on this call know exactly what I'm talking about. You are a long-distance caregiver, and in that role, you have a unique set of circumstances, but with preparation, planning, and preventive action, this experience can be a wonderful opportunity to develop new strategies, traditions, and memories across the miles. I will briefly address these questions and thoughts in my discussion. I'll also touch on how a caregiver may need to make some trade-offs in their roles when trying to care for a loved one who lives so far away from them. These trade-offs are strategies that they may use to do some self-care, such as when they find themselves in long-distance um, holidays, like Ms. Flynn mentioned earlier, and still trying to do that long-distance caregiving. So let's begin with this. What is long-distance long caregiving? Let me ask those of you on this call to close your eyes for a moment and picture a loved one or a friend who may live in another part of your city, state, or country. What types of things come to your mind as you visualize them? Do you wonder how their daily activities are going? Do you wonder if they're healthy? Are they having or living a good life? What new things are happening in their life? These are normal thoughts that enter our mind when we think of someone who lives a distance from us. Now shift that thought to think of someone that may live far from you and is ill. You may have the same thoughts, but now they are under the umbrella of concern for that ill person. You may have thought of your loved one who is now living with cancer at this moment, or even you know, may be a long-term cancer survivor. For those of you who live with or close to that individual, these questions often, if you live with that individual, can be answered just by walking across the room or getting in a car and driving a short distance to see them. But again, what about those who do not live in close proximity? What do you do? It's not so easy to walk across the room or drive that short distance, and that causes unique concerns, challenges, and circumstances for the caregiver, the patient, and, of course, the rest of the family. Now, for those of you who believe, like the caregiver I mentioned earlier, that you can't be a caregiver if you don't live with someone or live close to them, there is evidence that there are long-distance caregivers. Just for a quick moment, I was waiting for the call to get started today, and I went online and just Googled long-distance caregiving. I came up with over 35,000 hits. So we know that there is a genuine interest in long-term care and long-distance caregiving. We know that statistics show approximately 7 million caregivers are long-distance caregivers. And long-distance may mean living in a large metropolitan city where it takes an hour to drive between your home and that of your loved one, or it can, where it can take two hours per day, and then you multiply that times seven days, and then you get to about 14 hours. And so you do that on a regular basis, and you understand when I say that the caregiver then can start having their own stress. But what if you live on the West Coast or your family member lives in the East Coast? How do you care for them with those types of geographic distances um, between you? For our discussion today, though, I'd like to propose a simple definition of who is a long-distance caregiver. It is a person who lives an hour or more away from the loved one who needs the care. So those of you who are caregivers know how complex the care may be, and many of you fill different roles as you provide the care. You work full-time, and you care for a family. And we recognize an increasing number of caregivers are doing this across the miles. And there is no doubt that distance poses a barrier to caregiving. But again, there is growing evidence that even those who are long distance away provide essential support to their loved ones. Long-distance caregivers, you know you provide advice, financial support, 
help with decision-making, and are critical in providing help even during a crisis. So there is no doubt that being a long-distance caregiver can be both challenging and rewarding. Oftentimes, there may be feelings of frustration or guilt. I'm not doing enough. Perhaps uncertainty about the changes in their loved one's physical or mental health, all of which, again, contribute to the stress and the stress of the long-distance caregiver. In addition to those feelings, the roles and responsibility of a caregiver will change throughout the cancer journey or the cancer experience. So it's not surprising that as those roles change, the emotional and physical health of the long-distance caregiver will also change. So now you listeners may realize, yes, it's challenging, that, but we can be or we are long-distance caregivers. I'd like to share eight critical tips that will help you to plan effectively, be proactive, and be prepared. The first one is determine the strengths of your family. Look close to home. That is, identify the talents of each family member or friend who wishes to be a part of a team. Start putting a team together. Cancer is not a disease that is only for one individual. It is a complex disease, and so it takes many to address the different complex issues associated with it. So sometimes your own family members, your nuclear family, are not going to be the ones to help you, especially if you live in different areas. So you need to explore the families not only of your own, but also the family of the person you love or who is the cancer patient living in another area. Who is their family, their extended family, their nuclear family, their church family, their social club family? The word family can change very I mean, it varies depending on what what perspective you're looking at. At the same time, you need to set your own limits. Be realistic about what you can do and what can be done. You need to create a stable and realistic role as a long-distance caregiver. Be informed. And as Dr. Lee said, communication is key. So maintain close communication with the patient's providers and helpers. Schedule a regular time to call and talk to them. Learn what help is available within your health team. Every you, I mean, health teams nowadays bring in so many different strengths and talents based on their profession. Talk to them, communicate with them, ask them for help. And if they don't have the answer, I'm sure that they're going to be helpful in finding those that will be able to answer your questions. Look for help in your community. Even though it may be in your community, there may be branches in the community of the loved one that you're taking care of. And then for for sure, be certain to look at the resources that are in the community where your loved one lives. Set up a safety net. And by that I mean identify the neighbors, friends, or other relatives that can help you monitor your loved one's condition. The neighbor next door, the neighbor across the street, the person who drives them to church, the person who's close to them in a book club. Just identify people that you would be able to contact and ask about for help or ask about the status of your loved one if you can't get a hold of them immediately. Let them be your eyes and your ears. It's also good to maintain a log book or a little booklet of where you can record conversations with caregivers, providers, insurers, and other important people so you can keep track of who you have spoken to, when, and what the outcome was. You don't have to be eloquent and write a dissertation on each one of those, but just a brief note. Today I spoke to the insurance man or the Medicare office or the cook or whomever, but at least keep yourself little brief notes of whom you spoke to and what the outcome was. Make a contact list and keep those numbers helpful and handy. Make a list of everyone who is involved in the care of your loved one and give that list to as many different people on the team as you can. Keep copies for yourself. Pin it on the refrigerator. I have, you know, you can put them on the refrigerator. You can put them in the room. You can put them in the bathroom, and then you can give them out. I always have a folder of contact lists for family members who um, are in need and and freely, freely share with everyone. You never know when that will be handy for that individual. It's also important to start thinking, especially if you're a long-distance caregiver, to organize paperwork that is critical. For example, any information that is related to your loved one's financial status, personal information, legal information, health information. You don't want to be scrambling for all of that information when a crisis occurs. So if you have all of that already ahead of time, you're being proactive and you'll be prepared when that crisis may occur. If you are going to be making trips, try to book your trips 
in advance, ahead of time. So that way you don't, it gets very expensive traveling back and forth. No matter how far or how close, even if it's that one hour, it can still be expensive. So if you can book your travel, if you know you're going to fly, or plan those days when you can ask for your vacation time, it's helpful. And then you can plan around that time. And that way everyone knows that this is when you're going to be able to come and you can plan business trips or business that needs to be done during that visit that you're there. And when you get to the home of your loved one, do your own assessment. Look at the personal hygiene of your loved one. Look at the level of activity and mobility. Look at their nutritional needs or their groceries in the pantry and the refrigerator. Look at the condition of the home. Is it clear? Is it well organized? Look at the safety needs. Are there falling hazards? Are there smoke detectors? Uh, the carbon monoxide detectors, are there secure locks on the door? Does someone who is a trusted neighbor have a key to the home in case something happens and someone needs to get in the home? In the last few moments, I would like to share a few practical tips or self-care methods for being a successful long-distance caregiver. To help with your worry, you can set up a web camera so you can actually see your loved one, or you can talk to them. Skype is an awesome way, or that face-to-face iPhone comes in handy to keep in touch with a loved one across the miles. Regular communication and actually seeing someone's face or physical being really gives you that reassurance that you need. Do not hesitate to ask for help. As I mentioned, cancer is complex, so it takes a pretty complex team to help deal with all the challenges that are there. Talk to you again. Talk to your own family. Talk to your patient's family and friends. Look at organizations, and um, Dr. Messner, who will follow me in just a moment, will be able to give you the names of organizations. But, for example, if you go, you know, there's a group called Lots of Hands that can also help you identify people to help with all the different chores that may come along with being a caregiver. And finally, and most important, keep tabs on your own physical and mental health. Research has shown time and time again that the caregiver's own health has a direct impact on the health and the outcomes of the patient. If you don't have a healthy caregiver, it's going to be very hard for that patient to maintain their own health. Encourage yourself as the caregiver, whether you're close or long distance, to take time for yourself. Go run, go read that book, just go sit outside for a few moments. Do whatever it is that you call relaxation. Take those deep breaths, do some mindfulness, do some yoga. Again, just free your mind for a few moments of all the clutter and of all the things and all the complexity that comes along with being a caregiver. Remind yourself as a caregiver that you and the person, you and the person you're caring for will reap the benefits of being a healthy caregiver even if it may be across the freeways, the mountains, or the oceans. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you. And again, as we heard earlier, any tips or suggestions you may have that have helped you in being a caregiver. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. This concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really wonderful and um, just some excellent um, suggestions and tips. And, we, and as you said, we do want to hear from our participants as well. I just want to say a few words about cancer care before we do, go ahead and take those comments and questions. Um, I just want to um, – there are many resources that are out there for all of you. And so I'm just going to start by just saying a word about cancer care because our staff here can connect you to many of those resources. Um, so cancer care is a – charitable organization. Um, the services are free. Um, and we offer practical and financial assistance. We do have a copay foundation. Um, we also do provide um, emotional support, counseling services, both on the telephone and online. And we do offer telephone and online support groups as well. We have about 120 online support groups. And many people find them very helpful because no matter where you are in the world, you can always participate in an online support group because it's, it isn't based on time. It's really based on your posting and our oncology social work staff um, monitor the, the, uh, the, the uh, online groups on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And, um, and often there are up to 75 participants in those programs so that some people um, listen, some people post periodically. Um, and it's a wonderful way of getting information in a very secure, password-protected um, system of communication and support. Um, we also do offer um, these type of education programs, and we also have publications, printed materials as well that you can access, and, of course, the website. Um, and as uh, um, actually uh, Dr. Palos mentioned, there is a lots of helping hands in My Cancer Circle. There are a number of 
support mechanisms for caregivers in which you can um, sign up for them and you identify. Those are free, and you can identify um, the things that you need to have done or you need help, and people can sign up for different days to provide help. So that's, that can be very helpful to you as well. Um, so now we do have time for questions and or comments from our participants. I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to all of you how to go ahead and queue up and um, and either make a comment to add to our speakers because you all have expertise in caregiving, whether you're a healthcare professional, whether you're a person living with cancer who may be your own caregiver or who may be who may want to make comments for their caregivers or caregivers yourself. So um, Ayala, if you would um, just explain to you how to how to do this, how to queue up, and we'll. Happy to take off your questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question or have a comment, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. Um, and we actually have a comment from one of our online participants. Um, and uh, the uh, the comment is, um, what can I do to help my good friend who has lung cancer? He doesn't have family members close by. He says he's okay and that he can take care of himself, but my family and group of friends want to help. We have busy schedules. We want to take turns. How do we coordinate? Um, Dr. Palos, do you want to start with that one? Oh, you always have to have an individual like that, right? I mean, I think part of that is they've been so used to being self-sufficient and don't um, don't know how to ask for help, don't know how to accept help. And I think some of the things that you can do is continue doing what you're doing is just asking because there will be a day when that person's going to say, you know what, yes, I do need your help. But as a friend's group, what you might want to do is maybe just um, talk to the friends and then see you know, about going. To, one of you being the designated messenger, so to speak. But go and speak to the individual, and again, let them know that you, you know, you have all these friends that care about you, that love you, and that want to help you through this. Are there things we can do? And then give them specific su suggestions. Can I cut your grass? Can I go buy groceries for you? Can I, you know, simple things like that where the person, it's not going to be about asking, can I give you money? Because sometimes that can also create some uncomfortable feelings. But very tangible tasks that can be done quickly um, and you can walk away and they can feel comfortable thinking, oh, I didn't ask them for a lot of time, but they were able to do it. The other thing to remember is that many times our cancer patients can have fatigue and other types of symptoms. Even our, our survivors that have had their disease 10, 15 years ago can still have some of these lasting and late effects of their treatment and their tumors. So they may not be comfortable speaking about those, those symptoms they may be having. So if you can offer tangible tasks, Ask them when's a convenient time. That's the other thing. Sometimes people just don't want to deal with them, you know, don't want to deal with a visitor, don't want to deal with talking to someone about all that. But make those type of arrangements ahead of time. And many times you might not even need to speak to the individual. Just go do the work that you said you were going to do and then leave. And then eventually I think that person may come around and say, okay, I can accept some help from my friends who care about me. Excellent. Thank you. And do, do, Ms. Lynn, do you want to add to that? or? I, I completely agree with Dr. Palos, um, and I, I've even um, suggested to some of my um, friends and family um, that, you know, you could make a dish, um, a batch of cookies, make a couple extra cookies, and it's an opportunity to, to go in and just do a well check, um, see how that uh, good friend is doing it. it you're giving them something, and it's an invitation to say, I'm here for you if you need anything, um, and to keep doing what you're doing. It sounds like you're doing an amazing job. And, and Dr. Lee, do you want to add um, as well? Oh, I, I completely agree. It's the little things that go a long way. Thank you. And I, I should actually say that all of the services that are available in all the different support organizations that um, um, are both in your materials, and you'll get them with the evaluation as well, um, including cancer care, um, all have actually um, services for people like good friends who really want to do something and who are, um, but are finding themselves, um, you know, trying and trying all these different things. So sometimes you are, um, you know, you also can get some support yourselves because it's, as a good friend, um, it also um, is, it, it sometimes is hard for you as a good friend to actually um, 
to live with this and to keep trying and trying. And um, and I think, as has been said, um, sometimes the, the person listens and they hear you and they hear your support. Um, but sometimes you need support to keep doing this because it's it can be a very uh, it can be a, either it can be a the person can accept the help right away, but sometimes they really don't. They really need to have more time with it, and and it can be kind of frustrating for the person who's trying to reach out. So def- definitely that good friend. We want to keep that relationship going. So if anything we can do to support is really important. Um, so, um, and then we have another question from one of our um, um, online participants, and I think I'm going to give this question to Dr. Lee. Um, where can my sister get a second opinion for her metastatic lung cancer? You want to find someone local. And um, living about 12 miles from Toledo, Ohio, is there a directory for trusted doctors in major areas? So we thank you for that wonderful question, and I'm going to ask Dr. Lee to address this in a general way in terms of how does one go about finding an expert oncologist um, and a, for a second opinion. Um, what, what are some of the things that um, often you recommend for people to do in, in, in finding that, uh, you know, finding a, 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 that second opinion physician? Thank you. Um, so in, in general, um, when you're looking when looking at second opinions. Um, I would go for a large uh, designated, NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center um, uh, specifically for lung cancers. And uh, while the, uh, you may not have to stick with the second opinion doctor, but having that consultation provides one reassurance and also hopefully uh, starts actually a dialogue between the two doctors. When patients travel from afar to see me, often interstate, or from upstate New York who travel six hours drive to, to see me or internationally from around, uh, half the globe away, I often pick up the phone and speak to the treating uh, oncologist uh, and also send a, uh, a letter, a, a medical note uh, to, to, to have that dialogue and I routinely communicate with outside uh, primary oncologists who are treating the patients locally. Um, so uh, such a dialogue can actually uh, facil- facilitate clinical trial accrual, um, so getting access to novel therapies that's not av- otherwise uh, available locally, but also uh, hopefully coordinate care locally as much as possible because that's minimal disruption to the patient's lifestyle and, and quality, uh, upholding the quality of life. So um, I would go for a high volume center and, and uh, uh, in one of the NCI, NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers is a good way to start. Uh, cancer care may also provide additional directions on this. Well, actually, um, it is uh, excellent. It's excellent point that indeed there is a listing of the NCI designated centers, which either um, our staff have a listing of, or actually. Um, the National Cancer Institute at um, www.nci.gov. Um, uh, I'm sorry, at, I'm sorry, Cancer. www.cancer.gov um, has um, a listing of and have information specialists. They also have a, um, a live chat feature where you can actually post your question um, to one of the information specialists, and they will identify a closest center to where you are in terms of the designated centers of excellence that um, uh, Dr. Lee has mentioned. Um, so that's another resource. Um, and Ashley, uh, uh, Ms. Flynn, do you want to add to that anyway, or um, any other thoughts that you might have on this as well? Uh, I, I think you've covered it. And um, cancer.gov, uh, in addition to being able to to call, you can also um, email your request too. So there's there's multiple ways um, to get that information. Excellent. Okay. And Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything as well, or? Yeah, I believe my colleagues have addressed that question. Okay. okay. And Very we have well. a question. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, and you are seeing the multidisciplinary team in action here, so we're all trying to kind of find what different ways to be or to be either or in agreement, but just in terms of add anything that might be uh, just to help with the questions. So we have a question from one of our online participants, and um, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Palos if you would address this question. So it's really a comment, so that's a good thing, a comment. Um, for those who do not want to use family and friends or those who want help in an ear outside of family and friends, try your local cancer center and patient navigation services. There are social workers and nurses that can help and usually are free. So do you want to comment on that, um, 
uh, Dr. Pedlos, in terms of sometimes people want to move outside of their people that they know and and go to a more um, impersonal place to get their support. And if you could t- uh, comment on that. Absolutely. Um, they just mentioned two of my favorite people on the multidisciplinary team, which are social workers and nurses. They are essential members of the team, and I believe those are really the um, the oh I don't know the steering wheel of the team. They're the ones that communicate not only to the patient and to the family members, but also they then. Uh, facilitate that communication to all the uh, team members many of the times. The patient navigator is also essential in helping our patients to um, and our caregivers and family members to work through the process and the systems. So you have really two different different avenues, not just two, but different avenues. One is the most the more formal ways of getting um, help and assistance, and that would be through your institution and whatever programs your um, institution offers. I know that in some of the major cities, we do have navigators, we do have social workers, we do have nurses. But in some of the isolated community areas, rural community areas, or where um, there's limited access to um, um, hospitals and things, those folks may not be around. And then that's when it's good to look outside of that. And even if you don't go to your friends, there are still so many different resources now that are available online or through telephone, such as cancer care and on the others that you heard of. So you can also get the information there. But any time that you are, you, as soon as you get that initial visit to a uh, a hospital or a cancer care center, wherever it is that you're going to get your care. Uh, the first questions I always encourage folks to ask is, do I have a caregiver? Sometimes it could, you know, do I have, who is the nurse that will be working with me? And do you have patient navigation services? And then those three, those three, any person in those three key roles will be able to help you throughout that process. Excellent. And Ms. Lynn, do you want to add to that or? And I, I think it's also important to find um, someone that you trust to go with you on the medical appointments. Like Dr. Lee said, that you know sometimes as a patient, um, you, you can hear the information. It kind of is overwhelming, and it goes one, in one ear and out the other. And so um, I encourage um, my patients not only to bring their caregiver, but to bring a friend who can be there to take notes um, because y- – you may not have a caregiver that goes with you, but at least a friend can can help with the resources, um, writing them down. They don't have to be, um, you know, always the, the, the caregiver, but tapping into those resources. And sometimes they're in places that we, we may not always think of. We think of, um, you know, it's a lung cancer support group, but sometimes it's a veteran support group that um, – is um, as helping in the local community with with people with cancer. Um, so I really encourage you to um, talk to your medical team and see what resources are out there. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And we have this will be our last question. Um, and this question um, is I'm going to mm. pose it to Dr. Um, Palos, but I will ask the others to add to it as well. I am a long distance caregiver and have questions about my mother's recommended treatment plan that her healthcare team has been unable to sufficiently answer. I want to get her a second opinion, but she may, she she and my father are reluctant to do so. I am con- I'm concerned and not sure how hard to push to convince her to do so. Any suggestions? So I'll start with Dr. Palos, but then I'm going to ask each of our speakers to comment on this because this is a very common issue that people confront, and I appreciate the, um, the, um, the, the caller who posed that question online. Mm-hmm. That is a, a question that is very important and, and comes up often. I think, first of all, you need to find out as much information. I mean, apparently there are some things that are causing you to have this concern and to question the approach that's being used right now. So I, I believe one of the first things I would do is just, and this I, I, this process may seem like it's a waste of time, but it helps. Just sit down and write down all of your concerns are all the thoughts that you have that make you question this approach that's going on. Then once you have all those, you can organize them. And that helps you a lot because then it helps you to to not only know what's there, but then to be able to communicate it more effectively to the team. Because in in the medical world, in the Western world of medicine, that patient-provider relationship is very sacred. So you always want to go back and talk to the healthcare team first and see what it is, you know, express your concerns, voice the, you know, present those questions, voice the concerns that are there. Again, if you can involve your parents in that conversation, that would be good. 
As a social worker, when I worked in some of our clinics, what I always um, encourage were family planning meetings. You can ask for one of those where you can pose those questions and have those questions answered by the team. And then from there, you can decide what avenues you want to take. But I would definitely begin with the communication being with your parents and the healthcare team and you posing your concerns to that group first in, in a family conference setting. And Ms. Lee, do you want to add? I'm sorry, Ms. Flynn, do you want to add to that? Sure, it's an excellent question, and um, I completely concur with Dr. Palos um, to organize your questions um, and then schedule, talk to your parents, and then schedule kind of a joint appointment. Maybe they can Skype you into the medical appointment so that you can get your questions answered. Ask your parents' permission if you could just talk to the medical team. Um, here are the questions I'm going to ask them. Um, seek permission from your parents, and then schedule an appointment or a consult, um, you know, via Skype, via telephone, with that healthcare team. Um, maybe it's, a, it's um, kind of like the game of operator, where you're passing this message on through multiple people, and, it, and the true message isn't quite getting communicated, um, because it's traveling through a couple people. Um, I, I've noticed... Um, Many times, once that communication is enhanced, the questions are answered, um, it helps facilitate the next step, and whether that's a uh, second opinion or um, continuing on with that current team. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Lee, um, in terms of the whole issue of this. I, I, I concur completely. Okay. Well, um, and so this is really an important question. It's one that comes up a lot um, with family members. Um, wanting someone to seek additional questions and concerns, and I would encourage you to follow all the suggestions that my colleagues have suggested. And, you know, you also can individually contact any of the support organizations or um, talk with some of the people that we've mentioned, oncology nurses, oncology social workers. You can call any of the support organizations that will give you information about and discuss it with them, like how can I proceed with more detail about the concerns. You know, there is that whole issue of independence. Sometimes people just have a really hard time with these with these issues. So this is a wonderful question. This actually merits its own call, frankly. It's, it's um, a very large question that really could be its own program on, in and of itself. So I want to thank all of you um, on the call today. This has been, uh, first of all, I want to thank our speakers who've been extraordinary. I, I just want to, they can't hear us applauding, but we are applauding them. They've just really been wonderful. And I also want to thank all of you who've queued up, asked questions, either, um, and, and, and really been thoughtful questions online, um, and really have enhanced the program today, and all of you who've been listening. So I did say at the beginning, if we don't get to your questions, what if you still have questions? And I know many of you do, because I see there are more questions here. So I just want to um, let you all know how to get those questions answered. So we first want to start, of course, with the healthcare team. You definitely want to have access to your healthcare team if you have a question, um, you know, to try the question with them um, in terms of any of the issues that um, are medical questions. But if you have questions that really involve more of the emotional or social or practical or financial aspects of being a caregiver, there's so many dimensions, or even taking care of yourself, then I do recommend, well, you can start with Cancer Care. It's really just um, an organization that is here. It's, uh, it's, um, it's national in scope. And for those of you who are international participants used to using organizations called NGOs and non-governmental um, organizations, there are all over the world organizations, and there are really hundreds of them. But since you have access to this program today, and if you wish, you can contact us either by telephone at one 800 813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. You can pose a question here, and one of our oncology social workers will answer it, will address, will um, email you and, and connect with you online. You can also call us on our HOPE line, um, and our, our staff will talk with you as well. Um, so that's another resource that you can utilize. It's really important. Um, we I think all of us on the call today have spoken about how important the caregiver is. In in really, we as an organization probably help probably 50% of the people that we help are caregivers, if not a little bit more, because caregivers really um, are essential, um, especially with illness, cancer lasting longer over time, with more and more being asked of caregivers to do. And um, so um, please consider yourselves 
as important in terms of getting support. Um, I think Dr. Lupe Palos talked about the importance of your own self-care, and there are a lot of programs out there to help with that as well. So as we conclude the program today, I don't want any one of you feeling that you're alone. I want you to know, know, know that you're part of this world of support from not just Cancer Care, but all the organizations out there, and of course the healthcare team, the treating healthcare team and its institution, and the ability to actually seek a second opinion as well if you're concerned about that. So I want to thank you for participating today. I do want to mention a program that we have coming up that actually is general to everybody. It's called Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments, which could be something that you've observed or someone's experienced or brought to your attention. Um, and the program is happening on uh, Monday, February 26th, so I would um, encourage you all to you'll get information about it. And at the end of today's program, you're going to all be sent an evaluation form. And we appreciate your feedback, your comments, topics you'd like us to do going forward, because this is the beginning of a new year for us, so we're actually planning all of our programs for 2018. Um, and also there will be all the resources that were mentioned today um, and that we thought of that we want to be sure to include um, that you would have. So thank you all for participating, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.